Welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, where we plumb the depths of the runner's soul and strive, strive to understand the striving and strive to understand a better version of ourselves. Dead he was, a terribly happy guy, and Ned he ate a moldy pumpkin pie, and then he thought that he just couldn't die, so Ed, Ned, Fred, he's not dead, he laughed so hard that it made him cry. Hello, hello, and hello, my friends. Wow, what a busy couple of weeks since we last spoke. This time of year always makes me think about whether or not maybe we have too many balls in the air. And I'm torn. I'm really torn between whether having so many projects going on at the same time is a bad thing or a good thing. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Because having a lot going on forces you to focus and focus on those things that are really important. But when you do that, you let other things slide, and someone in your universe is bound to suffer. The other thing that I don't like is when my life gets super full of activity, all the slack time is taken away, and that means that any new or cool opportunity that floats by necessarily has to be neglected in the wash. So since we last talked, I ran the Boston Marathon. Yeah, had a good day. And I'll give you the brief version of the race report in the first section today. I also got Coach on the phone to talk about the race and my training because I think there's a bunch of takeaways and learning from this one. So I wanted to make sure we captured that. I managed to uh, fundraise successfully for Team Hoyt. I did not catch Brian and Rick, uh, Brian Lyons and Rick Hoyt. Even though it looks like Brian had your typical first Boston Marathon experience, he had too much of a head start on me. I made up 45 minutes on him, but it wasn't enough. In the second section, I answer a question about how to stay healthy on the road, how to have that healthy lifestyle when you travel for business. Someone had asked the question in one of the LinkedIn groups that I'm a member of, so I thought I'd give it some inspection. The other major event that I was involved in was the Groton Road Race, and we pulled it off with no casualties and had another good day. We had a big change this year where we ran the 10K and the 5K simultaneously on the same course, and it seemed to work out okay. We'll see what the feedback is. I ran the course in the morning, and it really is a beautiful course on a spring morning with the sun coming up over the hills and the cows and barns throwing long shadows in the pastures, and the old farm tractors resting in agricultural repose on the big hill up Common Street, the quiet punctuated by spring-busy birds and the occasional wild turkey call. It's close to a spiritual experience for me. In the intervening week between Boston and Groton, I did a couple bike rides and got some yoga work in, I took Fujisan out, my old road bike, on Wednesday, and that felt pretty strong. I was able to get down into the aero position and feel pretty comfortable, pretty good balance. On Friday, I had a blast, though. I took out my 29er into the woods, my mountain bike, 
for the first time in a long time. I thought I might not be able to ride those technical trails after so much time away from it. And I also had forgotten how much fun it is hopping rocks and climbing and ripping through the mud holes with my mountain bike. It was a blast. So that's cool. This time of year is busy. Busy for me, busy for you. And that busyness can also be a time of joy and creativeness. Instead of lying around waiting for inspiration, literally, inspiration means to be injected with spirit. You are forced to do the job because you just don't have enough time. And when you're forced to do the work, the inspiration somehow appears and the creativity appears. So don't be afraid of doing the work. Don't be afraid of having too many things to do because as you start to execute on them, the inspiration will come to you and the creative will find you when you embrace the work. On with the show. Tactics are like bailing water with buckets from a floundering ship. Strategy is when you step back, you see the patterns in the disconnected thought and actions, and then use those discerned patterns to navigate the storm. Boston Race Report, 2015, marching through the hills, powered by smiles. You're running the Boston Marathon, I implored the woman as I passed, adding a smile. You're on Heartbreak Hill, I continued. Come on, cheer up. And that was my race. Once I got through a little rough patch around 20K in, I just set my form and marched in, smiling the whole way enjoying the crowd support, and trying to convince people that they were having a great time. It doesn't matter that you're hurting. It doesn't matter that it's cold and rainy. This, this is the Boston Marathon, and that, that is the Sitco sign over there, and it doesn't get any better. Think about where you are and what you're doing. This is great. But it doesn't start at the Sitco sign. It starts in the morning, around 6 a.m. for me, it starts with me sitting in my living room and massaging Flexol into my leg muscles to get the blood flowing while I sip my hot coffee. It starts with a bowl of oatmeal with blueberries and raw almonds and honey. It starts with my wife dropping me off at the new Starbucks in town. In my outstanding disco-era throwaway clothing, an ill-advised polo sweatshirt that some kind relative found in a discount bin, no doubt, a fuchsia and lime green water-resistant pullover that Jane Fonda would have been proud to go aerobicizing in, perhaps in 1985, and a pair of red sweatpants that I remember clearly buying at Target in Atlanta for $10. Part of the fun of a cold, wet marathon is the functional disposal of horrid clothing from the back of the closet in the bottom of the drawer. My race clothes were underneath... Waiting for the call to the corrals, my new hokas were in a plastic bag with dry socks, dry gloves, and a dry hat in case things got even more wet on the way to Corral 5, Wave 4, and an 11.15 a.m. start. Ryan was running his first Boston, and he called in a favor to get us a ride down the highway to Hopkinton. With the driver, we had myself, Ryan, Brian, Charlie, and Brian's son, Kyle. As is our routine, we got dropped off at the South Street exit to catch the bus into Athletes Village. It drizzled on and off throughout the ride. 
On the bus, I sat with a first-timer from California who seemed like a nice kid, and I tried to counsel him the best I could. From my club, we were all in the late wave. Brian was qualified, but was giving up his seating to run his 16th consecutive Boston with his son. We made our way through the village. We picked up water and space blankets, and Charlie stopped to fill out the personal info on the back of his bib. I didn't bother. It would be too hard to get under all the layers, and besides, my fingerprints are on file. They'd identify the body eventually. We made a nest in the grass and passed the time listening to the hilarious announcer calling the waves in a thick Boston accent and cajoling the runners to follow directions and shaming those who didn't. I told you not to try to cut through there. Now you're stuck, see? You should have listened to me. Nobody listens. The final runner from our club, Jen, joined us and we got suited up for the race and since we didn't start our day in Boston, there was no checked bag option for us. Everything we had we would either go with us into the race or get discarded on the field. And it's tough for the runners who don't know what to pack or what to bring or what to wear. They have to make a call at 5 a.m. for a race later in the day. And at one point in the field, I had a woman come up to us in distress, and she was holding her hands up to me for inspection. They were swaddled in a pair of socks, and she implored, Does anyone have an extra pair of gloves? And I said, Sure, and gave her the ones I was wearing. I had packed a spare pair. I had planned to toss out that pair anyhow. Another woman was walking ahead of us to the corrals and dropped a glove. So I picked it up and hustled up to give it back to her. You would think that I'd saved her baby from wild dogs, she was so grateful. Looking at the weather forecast, I decided to run in my typical race clothes. I have my new Hoka Clifton's, some A6 Tech socks, and my blue Zenza calf sleeves for support and added warmth. On the top, I had a long-sleeve white A6 top that would provide a nice base and contrast for the red Team Hoyt racing singlet. I donned this year's gray Boston Marathon racing hat that I bought at the expo. Sunglasses were not required, but I had the cloth gloves from Strava that they passed out in the previous year in Athletes Village. But the coup de gras, the sartorial exclamation point, and the cherry on the cake was a pair of A6 short racing shorts with red highlight to match my singlet. Even with all the throwaway clothing, and even with my large trash bag and all the space blankets, I never warmed up. My hands were cold and numb until I got in the hot shower at the hotel at the end. But you know, one has to expect a little discomfort when one is following one's passion. Don't you agree? I foraged a small cliff bar from one of the booths to put something in my stomach while we waited to be called. I had brought a bottle of the new Beat Blast that Coach sent me and a bottle of G2 that I mixed up the night before, and I nursed those through the morning. For race nutrition, I carried my 24-ounce bike bottle with water and five hammer gels. I took one of the gels when we left for the corrals and stuffed the other four into the back side of my gloves, two in each side, to carry with me. The short shorts, it turned out, only had one key pocket weirdly located on the back of my hip, left hip, and I stuffed a small thing of lube and a snack baggie with four or five Endurolites into that. 
I like to put the gels into the back hand side of the gloves so you don't have to worry about dropping them or holding them. And you could put them in the palm side, but I find if you do that, you tend to squeeze them, and then you risk a rupture, which creates a big sticky mess in a race. It turned out that the key pocket didn't matter, because when I went to dig the Endurolites out, they were gone, and so was the lube. That weird key pocket ended up being tremendously dysfunctional. I don't know if I could have gotten them out with my hands being so cold and numb anyhow. Cold hands inside wet gloves are fairly useless for any sort of manual dexterity. I ended up carrying my phone. I had it inside a snack baggie, and I switched it off pretty early in the race. As the rain got harder, I didn't want it to short out if it got wet. I did a good job bringing my weight in line for the race. I weighed in at 181.6 in the morning, and I weighed out later in the day just to see how I looked later in the day after dinner, and I was 183.4, so pretty good weight management. The start was very well managed this year. They seem to have figured out the flow. Brian and I gave Jen something to talk about as we executed our discreet Gatorade bottle excess fluid disposal trick under our trash bags and space blankets in the corral, and she didn't know what we had done until we told her, and she was amazed at our discretion and dexterity. Old pros. The rain picked up in the corrals and continued through the first half of the race. Uh, depending on you, where you were, it rained more or less, but it was pretty rainy and cold all day. Back in the charity waves where I was, we were packed in after the start and moving pretty slow. My first mile split was only at 10.05, and the pace was all over the place with some people walking, some people trying to weave through the pack. I talked with one fit kid who was trying to run 745s, and I told him he'd better he better take off, and he'd better stick to the left road shoulder and pass people in the grass. I just stayed in the middle of the road. I passed when there were gaps. I had fun yelling out the charity names as I passed people with the shirts on. Dana Faba, MR8, go Liva! <laughs> I caught Charlie, my teammate, and I passed him. I caught Ryan, passed him too, had some fun with him. And after a couple of miles, the pack shook out a bit, and I stretched out the pace a little. I wasn't wearing a Garmin, so I had no definitive pace reading, but it felt a little fast, and I was having fun. I ran some fast miles then, between like 2 and 10, and was and I was feeling it, because the AFib kicked in, and I lost power climbing up a little hill. And I reeled it back in. I took a walk break, pulled over, took a pee, reset my attitude and my form to focus on pushing my hips forward and running with my core and just smiling. And I was a little worried because that's pretty early in the race to be losing power. Uh, I saw Jay and Deb Kumar at the 12-mile water station, and I stopped to chat with them. And they asked me how I was doing. I said, well, you know, my heart's giving me trouble. But after a couple miles... The pace and the form reset started to work, and I was back in the zone, having fun, at a much more reasonable pace. By the time I got to Wellesley, I was feeling great and running strong, and the girls were great, and I high-fived all of them and gave them a big smile. And with my form tight, I marched through the half and into the hills, and I did some quick math and figured out I was tracking about 15 minutes ahead of a four-hour finish, so I just relaxed and had fun. The crowds were actually comparatively light 
until we got into Newton. And they grew in size and fervor as we got to Heartbreak, and they loved my Team Hoyt singlet. Team Hoyt's very famous in Boston, and they were really cheering for me. The crowds would, would start yelling at me, and I'd turn to the woman next to me and I'd say, I'm very popular. And then after a pause, I'd continue, I think it's the shorts. <laughs> I didn't have the energy to high-five or greet everyone who was calling me out, so I just, I'd just i point at them or I'd smile at them or I'd wink at them as I worked through the hills. I was slow but strong, and I was in a great position to really appreciate the race and the majesty of it all. And I figured if I had to walk in the high miles, I would, but it never happened. With that strong form and core, my legs just kept moving. That was what I had trained for. My mantra was hips. Every time my form would start to slack, I just straighten up and visualize my knees being lifted by my abs. It was cold out, but nothing compared to what we trained in this winter. The cold weather was great for racing. I didn't take a single cup of water or Gatorade from any aid station. I refilled my bike bottle halfway, twice, but that was it. I ate my four hammer gels, one every five or six miles, no problem. The cold weather had us burning more calories, more energy, but running less risk of nausea. I had a couple of times when I'd feel that twinge in your hamstring or your calf from the cold. But instead of making that rookie mistake of focusing on it, I just laughed it off. Nothing ever materialized. I felt great right through the finish. And that being said, the hot shower in the hotel room was amazing. Like I said, my hands never warmed up until that point. There's nothing better than a good, hot soak on a cold day. I hung out and celebrated with the club for a couple hours and then met my wife for a seafood dinner at the train station, as is our tradition. I wasn't too sore on Tuesday, but I was sore enough to be satisfied that I had given it a fair effort, and my legs were fine by Thursday. I did a couple of bike rides during the week, and then I ran again on Sunday. Most everyone I knew had a good day. The cold temperatures were good for racing for us. I didn't see as many people walking in the high miles as I usually do, or maybe I just didn't notice them because I was having a great time. The headwind was a little annoying when we dropped down into the city, but it, it didn't really slow me down. I had a great day, had a really good race. I ran the race I trained for. I got the most out of what I brought. And now for today's featured interview. Going into this race was, um, for me, something that I've never done before. Not the race itself. I've done the race many times, and I've raced many times. But it was a training cycle unlike any other training cycle, which is really cool because at, you know, 52 and a half years old, I've been doing this for a long time. And to learn something new is, is pretty cool, right? And so the backstory is, is like around January... You know, beginning of January, I, I found out for sure that there was something wrong with my heart. And I had been suspecting it since last summer because we went through that training cycle last summer. And I, I, I just couldn't, I wasn't training at the level that I'm used to. And I, I just thought maybe I was having, I was, I was old and I wasn't getting into shape as fast. And maybe my heart rate monitor was broken. But I got it, I finally got it all figured out in the fall. Um, with the cardio, the doctors, and they said, well, you got this exercise-induced AFib, which means that any time I loaded my machine, my heart would flip out. 
not go faster, but just flip out, start beating out of sync, right? And so the result was that it would lose power. So like it's like it's like you have a bad transmission. You put the gas on, and nothing happens, right? So it would be exactly the point in a workout where you get the most benefit when you're training for racing. So like step-up runs or intervals, that point where you get to the point where you're putting the hammer down and you get the most benefit from that workout is that last third of the workout where you're pushing it, you're at threshold, and you're learning how to race. You know, you're training your body to race in that discomfort zone. And that's exactly what I couldn't do. And so, so we sat down, you know, in January and said, okay, this is what I got. I could run, <laughs> but I can't, I can't load the system. So I can't do hill repeats. I can't do intervals. I can't do step-up runs. I can't do tempo runs. You know, all I can do is run, right? So what do we do? I got to race in two and a half months, three months, right? You know, we worked with what we had, and, and I found it to be a really valuable learning experience. So a couple of things is talk about the basically what the program was that you that you set up for me. Well, we just you know when we realized that we couldn't do any of the hard stuff due to the hard condition, you know we just had to step back and think, okay, well you know we're just going to get the aerobic conditioning as as high as we possibly can. And we're and, and what's fortunate about you and and you know a lot of people talk about how many miles they need to get in. You know, you're the kind of athlete and the kind of runner where you have the experience and the pace that we could keep the aerobic conditioning dialed back, but yet we were still getting in plenty of, of work over the course of the training cycle. And and we just stayed smart. You know, we we did, you know, we, we kept things at a very low heart rate effort. And even when we went into, into, into surge work, we really weren't at aerobic threshold. We were staying just a little bit below there and, and, and low zone three stuff. And, and we just, you know, built an incredible base. It's, that's what we did. And uh, and the strength work and the core work, you know, we talk about that all the time, your strength and the core work. And the great thing about working with you in a situation like that is you're smart, you've been there, you know what to do. Um, for once, you didn't get crazy and say, well, I'm going to push this through this and, you know, end up and end up in the hospital. And you, you dialed it back and you were smart and you got it through and, and you know, we went and ran a 345 marathon at 52 years old on, on basically base work and strength work. Right. You know, if, if not that I care about time, but but the weather was nice, too, for me. That's my kind of weather, weather racing like we talked about. But I think we got the most out of it. My A goal was a 345. Yeah. Right. Unless, you know, some miracle occurred and we got a 10 mile an hour tailwind. My A goal was a. Uh, a 345 and so i ran a 346 and change so i was spot on and that's with some breaks i took some breaks along the course um so the mechanics of this were uh basically seven days a week you know working out seven days a week and three to four runs three of those runs um and again it looked to me like two or three week cycles depending on on what my calendar looked like and how I was responding, but two to three week cycles, and those were either hour and a half runs, ninety minute runs, or hour and forty five minute runs. Which this was a learning experience for me too, because you know I travel right full time for work. So when I roll out of bed in the morning, I can easily squeeze in an hour worth of work right before my appointment at eight o'clock, wherever I have to be. You know, you get up at five, you do your work, but with an hour and forty five, <laughs> it's not that easy, right? 
So I had to find some, uh, I, I ended up doing some late night runs where I'd roll, you know, I'd roll out of a business dinner and go run for an hour and 45, but it was okay because it was all zone two, right? You know, I'd just go and run forever, three or four days a week, and then one long run at the end. And we ran those long runs up to three hours, which ended up being about 30K for me because, I was again, I was taking them really easy, and I made a point of running those on a loop around my house, which has, you know, four or 500 feet of elevation gain and loss, right? So three or four big hills in that loop, and I do that loop four times. You know, so it's five-mile loop, three or four big hills, I do it four times, and my point was, you want you, even the, the crappy weather we get this winter, you got to be out in the elements when you're doing that training. You got to do that because that's what races are like. And that proved out Monday when we showed up. You know, some of those people who had been on the treadmill, you know, are out in California. They're like, we can't run in this. I like, I like, I can run this. This is a nice day compared to what I trained in. And the hills are important too because I couldn't do any hill work. So I had to work the strength work into my into my base, into those long runs. So I tried to do my, even though I'm just doing base work, try to do them on, on difficult courses, right, just to get that feeling of the coming down the hills and going up the hills and practicing those mechanics. And again, I think this right? is just a great, you know, this is a great testimonial to, to the Lydiard system because you don't have to push hills to get stronger on hills. You know, hills will make you stronger even if you run them moderately. You know, they, they strengthen the hips, they strengthen the quads, they strengthen the Achilles. You know, they'll help you develop cardiovascular efficiency, and you don't have to work them hard. You know, I'm a Lydiard guy, so when I look at what your training cycle was, you know, it was like we stopped your training cycle, and it's not like we, we didn't stop. I mean, we continued through the 20 weeks or the weeks that we had, but we stopped at what would normally be phase three in a pyramid for someone's training cycle. You know, we right. went base, build, and then easy hills, and that's where we stayed. And, you know, we never went into aerobic right. threshold. We never went into anything harder. And you, we just, you know, kept you very, very aerobically sound. We were fortunate. There were no injuries. You know, we didn't, you, yes, sometimes your your schedule at work is, is difficult because of the travel. But, you know, it, it just says if you put the time in and you're not, you're not afraid to run easy, you can stay strong running easy. Granted, we talked about this, you may not run your fastest marathon because you don't get the balance working that you need for strength and speed. But nevertheless, when a 52-year-old man who has experience level can focus on his base, stay healthy, build a, a long, solid base, you can perform at a pretty darn good level. And that's what you did. Yeah. yeah and the other thing that was different about this cycle is I can't remember going into a race with absolutely zero pains or niggles. Anywhere. Well, you're right. Not that, you know, right. Because and, and again, because we took the stress out of a lot of the runs, we were able to do, you know, a lot of back to back zone two and then little zone two, a little surge runs because we didn't have any hard work in there and you were recovering quickly. You know, and, and one of the things I was always watching for through the cycle was, OK, well, how are you going from Tuesday's 145 to Wednesday's 145? And, you know, you were staying pretty consistent all the time. And so even when we had our step down weeks, you were recovering very quickly. And that's why, you know, I think and, and again, that's a big testimony to your your prior experience and your prior conditioning. Yeah. You know, this in essence was a very easy training cycle for you that just kept you very, very fit so you could run a very solid race. 
Right, and it's not like we weren't working because I got up to 50 miles in some of those weeks, and my average was in the high 30s, mid 40s. So if you look at a, you know, for for a mid-packer, for an amateur like me, that's about where I'm going to be in a marathon training cycle. A real, you know, hard cycle is somewhere in the mid 40s. Um, peaking, you know, really hard, maybe peak up 50, 60. But um, we weren't, you know, we, we still had the volume yeah, then, sure. right? So that volume of miles yeah, adds volume up. volume and the miles. And, and, and again, you know, you're, in the last couple of years, you've gotten real dedicated to strength and core work. And I think, you know, especially as we get older, that's such a big key to staying healthy and performing well. Right. So I'll tell you my race story in a second, but... One of the other things we did this cycle, which was kind of different for me, was we swapped out a lot of the classic core work, you know, crunches and leg lifts and that kind of stuff with, uh, with yeah. yoga, right? And I tried to stay with it as much as I hate yoga, but, I, you know, I just did my yeah. yoga, as a matter of fact. And I think that helped my core uh, because it's more of a natural yeah, motion you know, than the classic core work, yeah. but it's still strength. It's not all flexibility. No, it's and still strength. And- I'm going to give a big shout out to Bonnie, who, who you know, we've added to the coaching staff as a yoga and flexibility instructor in, in the last six months and, and the work that she does and the preparation she does. And, you know, our yoga isn't you know necessarily traditional yoga. It's geared towards a runner and a triathlete. And that's why there's strength and there's a lot of core involved in it. You know, and, and I think too many times people you know get a misconception about yoga because they see themselves sitting in a studio with candles and you know, that's not, you know, we do yoga that's based on, on making your core stronger, keeping you, your, your muscles supple. Um, and, you know, we're just seeing a lot less, a lot less injury because of it. And she's doing a great job. And yeah, you're right. I think it, I think that really helped with, with, with your performance as well, too. Let me tell you how my race played out. And you probably saw this when you were watching my splits because they give you splits right. every 5K, right? So, you know, the first, Two miles, I was going nowhere. You know, I was shoulder to shoulder, like being in a phone booth with all the charity people. And everybody's running different paces, right? People are walking. And I just, I was just chilling because if you try to get through that, you're just going to burn up all your energy, right? You just got to wait. So my first mile split was yeah. a 10.05, right? That's fine. You know, sec- second mile about the same. And then we kind of broke free. And as soon as I broke free, I, I reverted. I kind of reverted to my old, um, you know, classic racing form, you know, which is a bit of an overstride, a, a racing form that I hadn't trained for, right, but would have been something historically that I would have run, and I think if I look at the splits, which I haven't studied them, I'm not really a data guy, I don't really care, I go by feel, um, I was running some sub-8 miles in there, but like 2 to 10, you know, right around 8-minute miles, right, just flying on those hills, having fun, passing people, yucking up, and then around 15K, my heart started to go on me. And I just started feeling the, the power loss. And I'm like, you know, 15, 20K, this is way too early to be hitting the wall at Boston in a, uh, in a cold rainstorm. So I, you know, I just, I was, uh, was kind of scared by that. I said, wait, you know, here's what we got to do. Just pull it back, you know, because you can still recover. You're, you're not in the hills yet at that point. You're, you're still way before the hills. So when I was at, like, the mile 12 water station, you know, I really was struggling, and I could feel my heart was uh, flipping out. So I dialed it back, and I, I just focused on pulling my shoulders up, pushing my hips forward, and lifting with my abs. And here's something else that's new uh, for me is my abs were a little bit sore 
after the race because I was running with my core so much. And once I, it took me about maybe a mile and a half, two miles of that before I recovered, and I got into this nice zone two, you know, eight eight thirty to nine minute mile, um, perfect form, and just was got through Wellsley with the girls, high fived every one of them, just was having a ball. And then when I got into the hills, I'm like, well, you know, because because I was I was I thought I was losing it around twenty k, so I was like. Well, when I get in the hills, I'm probably going to have to walk all those friggin' hills, right? Got into the hills, felt fine. It was all recovered, just lifting my knees, staying on my form, trying to help other people, right? Over the hills, beautiful. You know, Sitco sign, beautiful. I slowed down a little bit at the end, but that was just fatigue. It wasn't anything like crash or anything, right? But, you know, I was able to use my core to lift up those hills and through the finish, I was able to settle in. So basically what I did is I started running the race I trained for, which was all those <laughs> long runs in that form at that effort level, right? I just reverted to that. And once I started running the race that I trained for, it was it was a no-brainer, right? It yeah. was a blast, right? In those that like two miles to ten miles, I was running a race that I hadn't trained for, and that yeah. wasn't going to end well. <laughs> Right. And and luckily, my heart told me before my legs told me. Um, but, yeah, it was fine. You know, I get a little lightheaded at the top of every hill. And I'm like, oh, OK, there, there goes the heart again. But then you hit, go down the backside and recover. Um, what really kills you at Boston is if you crash yourself in the hills, then going down the hills at the end really hurts because you're coming down on your quads. When your legs are trashed, that's where people really suffer and I had my, my quads were sore, but I was fine. I was doing yard work on Tuesday. And, and, and again, you know, there again, we, we talk about the overall conditioning process. And, and you know, it, it, it does my heart well when I hear, you know, someone saying, no, I just started running from my core because, you know, you know, I'm screaming that to people all the time. It's, you know, especially when you start to, you know, feel that fatigue. If you've trained to run from the core, if you've trained to run with good form, you know, that's what you need to focus on to get home. You know, just... Right, and 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 you you focus on little things, right? It's you push your hips forward. Make sure your hips are pushed forward because that'll pull your whole, that'll pull you up tall, right? Like there's a there's a hook on the top of your head, and somebody's pulling you up straight, and uh, and and uh, bring your hands up nice and high and tight, and and then lift with your you know with your lower abs, lift your knees with your lower abs, like there's a rubber band between your you know your your abdomen and your knees, right? And then uh, the other thing you got to do is you got to yeah. smile because I, especially in that weather, I saw people just freaking out, you know, something that start going wrong and they focus on that. Right. So in that kind of weather, you get a lot of twinges. You get a lot of like, um, you know, your hamstring will start to twinge because it's so cold. And the wrong thing to do is go, oh, my God, my hamstring is going and focus on it because then it'll go. The right thing to do is say, huh, OK, that's what that is. Keep moving. Right. Just put it aside. Right. So it's uh, it's uh, yeah. So that's sort of the experience comes in there. Right. Because your whole race can go sideways if you focus on the stuff that starts to hurt. One of the things about Boston is, you know, it's everyone's dream to get there. So many people are there for the first time, you know, and obviously they get you know the beginning of the race. They get lost. They get out of themselves. We're talking about they forget everything that they were told race preparation wise and they just go wild. And I think. 
when when those little twinges happen, and that's why they get into them because they think, oh my God, I'm at Boston now, my hamstring's gone, and they're not experienced yeah. enough to say, okay, I'm fine. You know, this is you know this is marathon stuff. It happens. You know, and and right. it, it was funny because it, if you're watching Meb, Meb had a bit of a hamstring issue, and it must have been around, if I remember correctly, around mile 18 or 19, somewhere around there, and he actually stopped. You know, he stopped and he walked for a second, and then he started running again, and he was fine because he said, okay, this is the issue. This is how I take care of it, and, you know, I'm going to go finish. You know, and that's what he did, yeah. and that comes with experience. You have that kind of experience, and I think a lot of people, when they get to Boston, um, you know, it's their, you know, it's a, it, one, it's their first Boston. Some people it's, you know, maybe only their third or fourth marathon got them there and they've had great success yeah. to this point, And now they're at Boston and things get a little challenging, weather made, you know, weather conditions tighten the muscles up for everyone and they feel twinges and they react to a twinge the wrong way. And that's just an experience thing. So I think I ended up with what, like 835s were my split somewhere around there on an average. I'll take that. I'll take that in heart. In a bad yeah, heartbeat. I mean, it's, it, you're 52 years old. This was what, Boston number 16? Yeah, 16 or 17, depending on if you count that one in yeah. uh, 2013. And, um, you know, we, we have this heart condition going on, and you're going in for a procedure soon? I think. Yeah. So I'm thinking with this base, you know, I could lay on about a month of uh, speed work, and I'd be uh, I'd oh, be yeah, re-qualified. I think absolutely. I mean, you go, you're... You you go out now and again with this with this nice space that we have, you know you get out of your procedure you're ready to go back out of it. We we can requalify with no problem somewhere, as long as it's not Pocatello. What's this deal with the oh, hood to I'm coast? Excited about hood to coast. Um, we now have uh, seven people signed up on the team. We're running for the um, the Portland Providence uh, Cancer Research Center is the charity that we're running for. So why do you need more than six people? We don't need more than miles. six people, and I be and I would love to do it as as an ultra. The problem is it, it doubles the fundraising amount for everyone. No, they oh, don't, they don't cut you, cut you right. a break. The fundraising amount stays the same whether it's an ultra or twelve. So with twelve people, it keeps the it keeps the fundraising amount down. Um, but it you know Hood Coast, the granddaddy of the relays. You know it's the Boston Marathon of the relay sure. races. Uh, we right now we have a pretty yep. peppy team going too. Yeah, I'm guessing you're probably not going to place at that race, though. There's some yeah, they get uh, some they get there. some fasties there. Um, but we have a you know we we have a pretty nice co-ed team going into this race. The nice thing about our team is um, it, it, it's a co-ed team with a little pep in the step. You know, most of the people can run pretty well. I got a plan that I'm baking in my head that I'm going to fly to Minnesota and rent the motorcycle and uh, ride across the Continental Divide to meet you guys ah. out in Portland. <laughs> That might be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Portland is really pretty in August, so. and and you know the race goes from Mount Hood, you know, down to down to the to the beach. So it's uh it, a lot of downhills. The downhills are brutal in this race, yeah. but it's, it's it'll be. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I mean, we have a uh, you know Paul Rogers and Sherry Ann and myself and you, uh, Ellen. We have a we have a fun group coming too. So it, it'll it'll be smelly in the Good. band, but but fun smelly. So. All right, so we'll get it done. All right, I'll let you go right. back to work. And uh, that was a good cycle, Jeff. That was a good cycle. It was a good training cycle. And, and again, you did a great job. And, and um, it screams screams, and screams that you can do things with bass that, that you don't believe that you can do. People should learn from this that you should use what you got, you know. what Whatever you're given, use it. 
because you can you can find a way to use what you got. All right, man. All right. Thank you. All right, we'll see ya. Where's the home for your heart? How to maintain a healthy lifestyle while traveling for business. Tips to stay on your healthy habits while traveling. I've been traveling for business since uh, about 1985. Yeah, I know. I've been almost everywhere in the United States that there is a business to be visited. I've traveled for business in Asia and Europe, and it's always a challenge to stay on your healthy routines throughout your travel. The food choices have gotten much better over the years, and the attitude of the executive suite towards a healthy lifestyle that includes exercise and healthy eating, it's improved. Typically, you're no longer the exercise or nutrition pariah if you choose to manage your lifestyle on the road. Attitudes have changed. You're in a much better position to plan and design your healthy habits on the go. Here's a few thoughts to consider when designing your healthy travel lifestyle routine. First is check your own attitude. Is it really the travel that's impacting your exercise schedule and your healthy eating, or is it your own assumptions? Are you assuming you won't be able to squeeze in a workout? Are you assuming there are no healthy eating options? Or is there some switch in your brain that flips when you step on the airplane? Are you using travel as an excuse to make poor decisions? Are you using those business dinners as a smokescreen to forget about your lifestyle goals? Check your own attitude before you do anything else, because if you're not bought into the necessity of fighting for your healthy lifestyle, then you have no chance. If you're going to accept every free drink and savory appetizer that gets waved under your nose without thinking about it, you are in trouble to start with. Fix your attitude before you get on the plane. Have your goals ready. Know what's really important to you and why. And that will help you pass on the blueberry martini and the short ribs. My point is you can control your life, whether on the road or not, and no one's going to give you a hard time. And if they do, screw them. It's your life. Don't abdicate responsibility for your healthy lifestyle just because you're traveling. Second thing you should think about is having a plan. You can't just go into a travel session without a plan. If you do, then you're allowing for circumstance to take care of you and your goals. Circumstance is a poor decision maker. One of the most dangerous things about business travel is that you are constantly being forced to make decisions when you're tired. From the intensity of the travel and the intensity of the work, you develop decision fatigue. When it comes time to work out, you can't make the decision to put your shoes on. When it comes time to make healthy food or drink choices, you just can't. You're too tired. Planning helps by taking those decisions away and making them ahead of time. For example, I will look at my travel schedule and meeting schedule for the week and see where my workouts are, what clothes I'll need, and schedule in how to get them done. If I don't have time to get a workout in, I'll schedule that in as a rest day or a lighter workout and work around it. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do or what I'm going to wear. I just have to do it as it is scheduled. And this takes the decision-making out of the process. In the same way, I'll try to do meal planning. I'll schedule into the trip how I'm going to get to a grocery store or what I need to bring in my suitcase. Essentially, you do a meal plan before you go. 
This way, you take the decisions out of the equation. If you know you have a business lunch or a dinner, you can meal plan ahead to have the dinner salad type option. The point of this is that if you try to wing it, you're more likely to make bad decisions. If you have a plan, you still might miss on a few days or meals or workouts, but it won't be a total failure. And many times when it comes to travel, a tie is as good as a win. And the third thing I want you to think about is being prepared to say no. As I write this, I'm sitting in first class on a morning flight to Atlanta. I could have as much of any alcoholic drink or soda that I wanted if I wanted to, but that's not my lifestyle choice. I wouldn't be drinking wine at 8 o'clock a.m. at home. Why would I do it here? But you'd be surprised at the number of road warriors I see getting that Bloody Mary for breakfast. Why? Because it's free, and the flight attendant will get them whatever they want. The flight attendant also asked me if I wanted the egg sandwich breakfast. Why would I eat something like that? It's guaranteed to be calorie-dense and nutrition-poor. I'm sure it's yummy. It looks great. It smells great. But it's not what I designed into my life for breakfast today. It does not align with my goals. I asked for a cup of coffee and a banana. And of course, they tried again. That's all you want is a banana? Yes, that's all I want. The hard part is that everything is free. And everyone else is saying yes. And it's being waved under your nose all day long. It's easy to make bad decisions. You have to get good at saying no. It's not only okay to say no, it's necessary. And you should set that expectation that you're going to say no, plan for it, practice it, and make it okay in your mind. The fourth thing I want you to think about is getting logistical leverage in your travels. Many times the nutritional choices you will have at a conference or a client site are just not what you need. You'll be forced to make a choice. And that choice is, you can eat the pizza and sandwiches, or you can starve. And not eating is almost as bad of a choice as eating the bad food. Not eating throws your body into starvation mode, and it makes it hard for you to be effective. When I'm doing my travel planning, I'll try to get as much logistical leverage as I can. And what this means is I try not to be trapped at the mercy of what circumstance provides. I'll try to be the guy who rents a car, and I'll try to get a hotel choice that at least has a refrigerator and maybe even a kitchenette. If I have a car, I can get to the supermarket and stock up on healthy stuff. I'll buy enough fruit, vegetables, nuts, nut milk, salad fixings, smoothie drinks, good nutrition bars, and even healthy salad dressing. Many times, the site you're working at will have an employee break room with a fridge. And you can set up your own little nutritional storage depot right there. And your company won't care if you expense 100 bucks worth of groceries for the week. Another trick I use is that I buy enough so that I can share. I can offer it up to the team I'm working with. I'll get a big container of raw almonds or a bunch of fruit. And I'll put it out on the table for everyone to nosh on during the meeting. Now, instead of being that weird guy who brings his own food, I'm the weird guy who brings food for everyone. The people you're working with don't care about your diet either way. When they roll out the pepperoni pizza for lunch, you just announce that you're on a special diet because you're training for a race, and you eat your Cliff Bar and your apple instead. Frankly, it becomes a social value positive 
because you're that guy who has goals and does hard things and takes control of his life. That's the kind of person people want to trust with their businesses. Own it. Live it. Don't be ashamed of it. And finally, expect that jet lag effect. You're going to have to schedule your workouts in the morning or even late at night. You may have to miss some sleep. When you build your plan, you'll figure out when the workouts are going to get done and when they're not. If I'm coming in on a midnight flight and have a 7 a.m. meeting, I'm not going to try to squeeze in an hour and a half workout. If I schedule that, I'm setting myself up to fail. For that day, maybe instead I'll just throw in 10 minutes of stretching or core work in the morning before jumping into the shower. You have to plan, schedule, and set yourself up for success. Sometimes this means being flexible in your training schedule. Sometimes it means doing less or skipping a day. If you're crossing time zones, you'll have to expect your performance to suffer. You're not going to be fresh for your workouts. Try to schedule less rigorous work for when you know you're going to be fatigued and jet-lagged. I like to work with the venue I'll be at and schedule some less intense exploration runs. For example, if I'm in Phoenix, I'll try to run up Camelback Mountain to watch the sunrise in the morning. It's beautiful. It's a balance that you'll have to find. Schedule enough rigor into your workouts to stay on plan, but not so much that you set yourself up to fail. And a final note, another note, is to be careful with the alcohol. One of the perils of business travel is that every time you turn around, there is someone offering you a free drink. We travel on expenses, and the company pays for everything, so why not treat yourself to a few micro-brews? The hotel is having a manager's reception for their special clients. Won't you come and have a glass of wine from the local vineyard? It's been a long day. You're finally on the plane. Won't you have a nice, relaxing single malt? I've known people whose sole reason for having a travel job was for the free booze. And I'm not begrudging you, you're imbibing when appropriate, but when you're traveling, you have to be very careful because the alcohol can derail your nutrition and exercise. First of all, if you drink at night, you're going to be far less likely to hop out of bed at 5 a.m. to run that interval workout you had scheduled. Second, all those drinks are chock full of empty calories, especially the craft IPAs that I love dearly. Third, you're already tired, jet lag, and decision fatigued. One drink can obliterate your decision control when it comes to nutritional choices. You'll find that all of a sudden the deep-fried Krispy Kreme donut sandwich sounds like a really good idea for a midnight snack. Again, try to plan ahead and know what your priorities are. Before you order that second beer, drink a glass of water and see if maybe your decision process clears up a bit. When it comes to travel, you don't have to be perfect. Moderation is a win when you're on the road. So wrapping it all up, I've been traveling for business for 30 years, and I love it. I love the adventure of new places and new projects and new people every week. I can remember in my 20s seeing a man, probably around my current age, drag himself onto the uh, airport tram, weighed down by his bags and his demo kit, and he looked so weary, so unhealthy, so unhappy. And I thought to myself, I hope I'm not that guy when I'm that age. Well, it turns out that I am that guy, but by choice. I'm not weary and disheveled. I'm healthy and fit and happy to be living a lifestyle that I have designed for the most part and tuned over the years. And that lifestyle involves a lot of travel, and I dig that. I wouldn't have it any other way. Part of my value in the modern workplace is indeed my ability to travel well and my love of it. 
and the travel only impinges on my life and goals when I let it. There are always trade-offs, but that is the nature of life, and these trade-offs, like any others, are under your control to manage if you choose to do so. So travel well, my friends. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. So, my friends, that's a wrap of all the busy work that I've been doing in the last few weeks. We have swept it all carefully into the collective dustbin of episode 4-311. Next week, I'm going in for my heart procedure, and they tell me I have to take a week off from training. But that I'll be back to normal after that. And I'm curious to know just what normal is. If the procedure works, what kind of shape am I in with this big base I've built up? How much of a leap would it be for me to get my speed back on top of that? How much of my speed will come back? It's new ground to be tilled in this adventure we call life. I've got two races scheduled on the calendar. The first one is a half marathon with some of my buddies from my running club down on Cape Cod in July. The second, and certainly more auspicious, is the Hood Coast Relay at the end of August. This is the oldest relay in America. It's a bit of a bucket list item. I'll be fundraising for a Portland cancer clinic, and I plan to wrap some sort of midlife crisis adventure around the race. <laughs> and I'd also really like to run the Wapak Trail Race this year, which is the following weekend. And depending on how I feel after the procedure, I might want to take a swing at qualifying. But I've been pushing the road work now for close to two years straight. And the little voices in my head are telling me I should probably switch sports this summer for a change of pace. A quick note on the How to Qualify for Boston ebook that I wrote. I'm, I'm probably going to pull that off of Amazon and market it directly instead. I started writing a book plan for like agents and publishers, and, and I realized that I had more social reach than any of them, so it would be silly for me to give up control and profits. Why not do it myself? And if any of you want a copy still, the offer's still out there, just shoot me an email, and I'll give you one in trade for a charity donation or a review. You're my friends. I love it when you read my work. Breaking news, though, is that I acquired the domain qualifyforboston.com, so I'm going to take a shot at building out a niche website and try to monetize that. So if any of you know how to do that, please help me out. <laughs> And since May is going to have some downtime in it for me, I'm going to take a cue from my Zen Runner friend and try to write a blog post every day in my business blog just to see if it makes ripples and, and just to experience the discipline of doing that every day. And I think the value of these everyday streaks, whether it's running or reading or writing or meditating, it's that transformational power. The repetition actually changes the way your brain works and you gain some great insights. The repetition reprograms the brain and takes advantage of neuroplasticity. So I'll probably try to get the Miracle Morning routine kick-started for that as well. Last thing I want to do is have too much free time on my hands because idleness for me is indeed the devil's workshop. Another project I'm working on is I'm trying to set up a mastermind. So what a mastermind is, it's a group of four to seven like-minded individuals that meets 
or has a call like every week to help each other solve problems and make progress towards goals and learn. And so here's the offer. If you're a business person who wants to join my mastermind group, shoot me an email. I'm not, I'm looking for entrepreneurs and goal oriented people that are willing to trust and share and help people. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. This isn't about running. This is about business and, and life. Finally, I want to talk to you about struggle, especially this time of year. I see every day on social media people who are working through tremendous struggles. And I know it's hard to realize when you're in the struggle, but these are the best times. These times of struggle are what you will remember as defining moments in your life. These are the things you will look back on as having outsized impact on your life's trajectory. This is why we create struggles for ourselves when we don't have any. We take on a race or a new job or a big project or a taxing relationship issue. Why? Because the truth is we strive on struggle. It brings out the best in us. But you have to know this when you're inside the struggle. You have to, at least in some small corner of your mind, realize that this time of struggle is an opportunity to define yourself. And the way you define yourself in the middle of a struggle is the way you react to it, how you deal with it. You don't have to be strong, but you do have to be honest and good. And that might manifest as strength and bravery. Or it may manifest as empathy and leadership and kindness. When you are inside the storm, it's hard to imagine. But it's the struggle that defines us. And that's the good stuff. That's what brings out the best in us. And as you, my friends, are struggling down the road, I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned... He laughed so hard it made him cry. Not feeling it, man. Not feeling it.